in a religious set of optics, you would say, well, if my spiritual disciplines are good, then I am good, which is to reduce it down to this one thing. And then the athlete would say, well, if I'm physically very impressive, means I am impressive. And what we're saying is, hey, both of those are good, but there's more. It, it can't be isolated like that. It's very easy to, to be swayed by like what's popular or, you know, let's do this because we know it will be um, received well. But ultimately, I think like creating stuff so that your kids could see where you're at at this point in time and, and then to do something that you think is personally valuable <clears throat> seems to be like the best reason to do anything at all. I love that. I feel the same way. Yeah. I feel the same way about tattoos. I like getting tattoos at significant time periods. I don't give I don't care much for symbolism, but mm -hmm. being able to timestamp where you are at in life, I think is unique. And like I'm sure we all wish we would have had a podcast of our grandparents about who they are and you know, I never really knew my grandparents and so I wish that I would have had something to learn about them. So. Yeah, you know what's heartbreaking? Um, is that my my dad's going through Alzheimer's and dementia. Really? And he's a great storyteller. And most of these stories that he tells, like all, all of the children could tell them as well because he's told them so many times. <laughs> and at this point, like he will, when I see him, like we saw him on Christmas, and he'll say, hey, stop me if, stop me if I've told you the story before. And it's like, hey, man, I know the story better than you do. <laughs> <clears throat> but the sad part is that he had he had written this stuff down. <laughs> this this is sad and it's also like really funny. He had basically like written all these stories and and almost like written his autobiography. But he can't find it. Oh no. And he doesn't remember <laughs> he doesn't remember the password to his computer. So he he we think that we know where it is. But it's possible that like almost like an ancient civilization, instead of having these recorded, like we'll have to pass these down orally. Um, and, and I think what's going to have to happen is like we'll have to get all the siblings together and, and be like, all right, let's remember all these stories and like write them down for them. Because um, they're, they're like some there's some really great stories. That's funny. But speaking of stories, um, I also went to a oh, really? You were talking earlier about that. like your first job out of school. And towards the end of college, I got really into training, right? That was kind of like my, when the love affair started. And, you know, seeing this mistress of, of fitness and performance and strength conditioning is like my first taste of like, this could be something that could captivate my attention forever. And so I was um, applying to go to medical school but at the same time, I was like, man, what, what could be like the coolest job out of college? And in Stafford, Texas, it was a place called Plex. And Plex was a, uh, a performance center. It was a precursor to athletes' performance. And um, these centers, there's several of them, where guys would go out of college and leave early to train for the combine. So this was one of those places, and so it had that prestige. There were some guys that I knew from A&M that had gone there to train for the combine, and then uh, a lot of those guys would come back and they would 
train. And so um, this place, and especially the website, like it looked very, very cool, right? It was like, hey, these are all, you know, it was like this big long list of like NFL players. And um, because it was close to Houston, there were some Astros that trained there. And so, um, man, I share this because your story was very similar. Like I just showed up and I was like, hey, I didn't email, you know, email, this was 2005. You know, so I think I sent an email, but then I just drove down and just show up and be like, hey, I want to work here. And they're like, well, we can't give you jobs. Like, I'll work for free. And they're like, okay. <laughs> so it wasn't um, it wasn't a very glamorous job. I think what I had in my mind is that I would, you know, with the stopwatch around my neck, you know, just like be timing guys' 40s. And, you know, you know I just pictured like um, – like a, a short shuttle drill, you know, so I'm like, you know, directing these NFL guys back and forth. And I ended up just being the person that cleaned the toilets. And these, uh, he, Danny Arnold was the guy that owned the place. And he was um, reputable for preparing linemen to get drafted. And part of his shtick, and this was, you know, pretty cutting edge at the time, is that he would he had several apartments that he rented out. And so these guys would come and they would live there. And so besides cleaning the toilets, my job was to move these huge, like 400 pound linemen in and out of their apartments. And when two 400 pound linemen get done using an apartment, it's trashed, it's destroyed. Like you would look at these couches and he had like these um, warehouses that had all these, uh, you know, basically furnishings that they could have for the apartments. And these couches would be, it, it looked like an elephant sat on it. I mean, it was just like bottomed out. And I don't even know why I'm telling you this, but I think it's a funny story. Uh, it was a third floor apartment and it was like the middle of the summer and we had to move all this stuff out. <laughs> and instead of taking it, this isn't, my kids watch this, this isn't my, you know, shining moment. Instead of taking it down three flights of stairs, we just launched the couch off of the balcony <laughs> and we we told Danny that hey these fat guys just destroyed the couch and it was never questioned and I think I share that with you because I still feel guilt for that I still feel guilt for that but uh I guess the lesson there is that Danny was probably very similar to what you were describing like visionary like he would come in nothing was written and he would just take these guys through these really sophisticated and and cool looking sessions. And then the rest of us would try to figure out like what he did. And, and it turns out like he was just making it up. So the limitation to this business model is that it was all based on like his one brain. And it was all based on, hey, if you're not Danny, like you can't train these guys like he does. And so it, business oftentimes is really just one person's brain that if, if they do a good job of systemizing, they can get other people to, to think the same way that they do. But at worst, it's just one person like doing all the work. So I don't know where we're going with that, but can I tell you one last story? Of course. So there were, you know, pro football players there in one of the guys that we were all in awe of was Charles Woodson. Do you know this yeah. name? Yeah. Yeah. 
And again, I'm mopping the floors. You know, I'm I'm picking up, I'm picking up paper cups that you know NFL pros drink and then just toss on the ground. I mean, I'm doing all the grunt work. And I did my best to to be nice to these guys, to to help, but I was never under the impression that any of these guys knew who I was. Several years later, after I had moved on, um, came back to Dallas, had started my own gym, the Green Bay Packers are in town for the Super Bowl, and Charles Woodson's playing for the Green Bay Packers. And I think, oh, that's cool. You know, and every so often he would come on TV, and I would tell my wife, I was like, hey, you know, I've, I've actually met that guy. And it was, you know, kind of a cool anecdote whenever we would see him. Anyways, the central market here on Lovers, for some reason, he's promoting some wine that he's endorsed. And so I'm in there getting groceries. I was like, oh, that's cool. There's like a sign with him on there. Like, I know this guy, you know, quote unquote. And I realized that upstairs, like he's there and he's signing autographs and he's promoting this wine. I was like, you know what? I'll just, I'll just sneak up there and, you know, get a glance of, of this guy that I hold in high regard. And, uh, my wife is with me and I remind her that this is a guy that, you know, I was around some right out of college and I go up there and she's like, well, you ought to, you ought to go introduce yourself. And I was like, there's no way that this guy will know who I am. There's no way. And so I don't even make an attempt. It's a room, there's probably 30, 40 people in there. And we make eye contact. And I think, yeah, I'm right. He has no idea who I am. And so we turn, and if you've ever been to the central market, you know, there's like a room and then there's, there's a series of stairs you have to go down. And as I get to the bottom of the stairs, I feel a guy's hand on my shoulder. And he's come down the stairs, gone through 30 people that wanted his autograph, chased me down, and he's like, Spencer, how you doing? I saw you, and I just wanted to say hey. It's the greatest thing ever. That has nothing to do with nothing, but... Everyone's watching. Yeah, I just want to let y'all know that Charles Woodson's a close personal friend of mine. <laughs> <laughs> I used to be one of those 350-pound linemen. Did you really? Yeah. Well, I, I know from the conversations we've had that you've had some really cool experiences with huge, drastic life changes, you know, weight weight fluctuation being one put, of them. I had to put wood boards in my couch to make it not sink in. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to uh, bring up a sensitive topic <laughs> with you. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not even kidding. I literally put two two-by-sixes. In, in the bottom of my hand-me-down couch from that was 15 years old for my parents in college. So I probably should have thrown it out of the window as well. <laughs> that, would, that would have been a better, a better end of the life than, than, that, life, than that couch had. <laughs> well, welcome. Introduce yourself. Um, I guess my name's Hunter Clark. It is, yeah. And uh, I was invited here today, and here we are. Really... Uh a surprise attack. It was. You, you came here, but you didn't know that we were going to sit down. And how do we link that story? Well, in business, it's one thing to do a good job. It's another to try to teach other people how to do that same job. Was that a good segue? It's a good segue. Sure. 
we're talking about the Institute. You, and this is why we've blindsided you and have you sat down, you participated in the first cohort of the Institute, which is coaching coaches. And so it's one thing for us to be in possession of this information and try to help people not just with fitness, but with their health. And you were uh, a part of the, the first group of pioneers to, to try to get some of the information out of these walls and this building and see how it landed with other people. A lot of the stuff, because you and I had conversations before we even started the Institute, we were, we were co-creating as we did it. So it wasn't that, um, you know, we were shouting down from our ivory tower these things that had been cast in stone decades ago. It was like as, as we're going through this cohort week by week, we were, we were trying to, to basically clarify and crystallize this information that, yeah, could help people coach others in, in more facets of their life versus just strength conditioning. So you and I both have a background in, in strength conditioning, and you're here today really just to, you know, share a testimony, maybe maybe say something to to someone that hasn't gone through it or is, is considering, like, what is this? Why should I do this? Um, to to provide just a little bit of color. So thanks for being here. Yeah, of course. Maybe I should give it a little background yeah. um, and context. Uh, I think it's relevant. I used to work at a foundation that was a 10-week training program and was very fortunate to be in a position where I got to create an internship program. And we had a significant element of mental health, of behavior. We were working with adaptive athletes. And um, and and as much as it's rewarding to you know, manage an application process, filter through people, determine who's appropriate, who's inappropriate, but also determine who's worthy of, of this sponsorship, it was, I think, at the time estimated ten to fifteen thousand dollars per athlete and we sponsored ten to fifteen per quarter. So mm-hmm. it was a lot of money that was getting put into this foundation that ended up helping a ton of people. But um I was like I said, fortunate to um pick who those people were amongst, you know, the the remaining uh, trainers that we had. Mm-hmm. But I, I liked the internship program a little bit more, to be honest, as I reflect now after the fact, um, being able to create something where I was able to take other practitioners, for example, um, recently graduated college, wanted to go on to physical therapy school, wanted to go on to uh, be a nurse practitioner or any anywhere they needed kind of a credit for, you know, a 10 to, to, to 25 week program. And uh I got to create it from the ground up and it was a long time of failing and iterating and mm-hmm. kind of building this thing that I eventually became proud of, but it was rewarding because I felt like I was kind of going deep so that you could go wide instead of just having this blanket program that, you know, you rinse and repeat every time. And so mm-hmm. the iteration was really cool. And I think what's really amazing about what you guys are doing is the fact that you have put so much effort into standardizing the process of how you collect data and how you share it, but it's obvious to me that it's going to be iterated on, and every group that goes through this is going to teach you and Marcella and the rest of your team things that you're going to add into the to the next group. And mm-hmm. so, whenever I had my off ramp call with Marcella, um, I think one of the things that I really wanted to drive home was like I want to go through this again in five years and see 
what's different, see what's new, see what's better, see what's revolutionary again, because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, the worst case scenario is that this program is the same six months from now and a year and five years and 10 years from now as it is today. And so I'm excited to see the progression and the iteration because it's obvious that you guys care about being on more of the cutting edge and the, um, not necessarily experimental, but the um, experiential elements mm. of fitness. And mm -hmm. like you talk about with lifestyle and less of the bigger, stronger, faster, and more of the, um, how am I becoming better? How am I bettering the people around me? And how am I um, putting myself in a position where I can challenge people in a unique way that isn't like what we have been told by textbooks for the last 30 years? Yeah. Yeah, there's uh, there's a lot there. I think one, I have a, I have a condition. I have, I have an affliction that probably comes from, uh, you know, insecurities and, you know, past traumas, but I, I, and everybody makes fun of me here that works with me. I have this constant and never ending addiction to try to iterate almost to a fault at some point, you know, like, like the guys I work with, they would be like, Hey man, I think it's good. I don't think you have to like switch it right now and be like, okay, cool, cool, cool. But with this, I found this thing that, um, you know, I have good checks and balances like Marcel and others where they'll say that as well with the Institute. But dude, this course that we're going to do in March, the things that will improve from this first one, I'm pretty pumped about from the action library and like making that even more robust to having uh, more reps with this iterative process that you mentioned of, okay, how do you, how do you investigate what the problem is? How do you do field research? How do you start to, to come up with the first version of, of solution and then, you know, flywheel from there over and over and over again. Um, but the question I have for you is, why do you want to do this in the first place? Like, based on your background, like, you didn't come in with zero knowledge of this. Like, you have experience, both personally, when I talk to you and, and you know, you tell me things like, hey, I've lost, how much weight did you lose? I lost 170 pounds in two years. Yeah, 170 pounds in two years. Like, that fact alone means that there's, there's a, a very holistic process that somebody has to go through personally to do that. But then professionally, you've dabbled in these different modalities of psychology and mindset and self-awareness and, and stress management and all that stuff. And so why did this even appeal to you in the first place? I think the biggest thing is just the rise in mental health awareness mm. um, in my last role it began as a very physical role like you and your your first job out of college. It mm -hmm. was um, working with high-performing athletes that we were basically saying, okay, if there's an NFL combine-type program, how do we deliver that to people with no arms and no legs and people in wheelchairs? And so it was a very high physical um, stressor. Um, but what we quickly realized is the mental health component was the biggest area of room for improvement. It's like you know, you can get to 98 out of 99 efficiency and to get from 98 to 99 takes an immense amount of hours and effort and trudging through and, and failure to get to this next level. 
but that's 1%. Mm -hmm. But what if your mental health's at 20% and you're depressed and you're on medication that you don't want to be on and your environment, your family, your friends, your spouse doesn't support you? What if you got from 20% to 60%? In, in half the time that you could have gotten from 98 to 99. Is that really like a better use of your time and energy and, and money? And um, and that kind of became this game of what is the biggest, what can we do to improve the most with the time that we have? Mm -hmm. And mental health became the answer. And so we um, invested in a, a really cool guy um, named Morris Brissett who kind of pioneered this program for us. And it was all about breathing. It was all about mindset. It was all about taking time intentionally before and after working out mm. to kind of disseminate what just happened and disseminate what you're going to do and disseminate the other 23 hours of the day because I mean, I don't even like working out an hour a day anymore. I'm happy if I get 20 minutes or 30 minutes or God forbid 40, like awesome. Mm -hmm. Like why does it have to be an hour a day? Mm. But even if it's an hour, there's still 23 hours left. And so this whole behavior and mental health game has gotten such a better wrap around it because people are realizing the importance. And so at the end of the day, like what you guys are doing is going to matter way more than the bigger, stronger, faster. And so I've always been a fan of, you know, I've put so much time and energy and effort into the, into what are we doing during that workout? Mm -hmm. What are the numbers? What are the percentages? What are the sets and reps and how do we create hypertrophy and how do we create endurance and this and that. But like that doesn't, help me be a better person that doesn't help my life that doesn't help my relationship with my wife and kids and I think as I've seen these people go through our program at my last role and completely change their lives it wasn't that they lost weight it wasn't that they hit a PR it was that they were a better version of themselves and whenever they left they had more tools and more access to affect their environment and that's what gives them purpose and meaning and so whenever we kind of decided what is the success metric is it going back and continuing to work out, how many days a week, how much, you know, what are you doing? It's more, what are you going and how are you affecting your community? And mm -hmm. at the end of the day, like the, the number one factor for success that we had through the program that I was able to identify is you were way more successful to receive the fullest extent of the program that we had to offer if you had a healthy support system, if you had a spouse, friends, family, that wanted you to succeed. Mm -hmm. And even if you were a shredded, jacked, epic CrossFitter who came in, but you didn't have a healthy support system and your wife didn't want to be want you to be there, or you didn't have friends that held you accountable, you you didn't get as much out of the out of the program as these other people did. And so that environment became really important to me. And I think part of the program, aside from the context and the information that's given is it's a network of people that are all believing in the same thing and it's 20 other people that think like you and and we're not there yet as a as a society i think it's getting a lot closer but we're not there yet and that's a normal thing mm -hmm. it's not normal to sit around and talk about mental health and mm -hmm. talk about what are you struggling with and talk about vulnerability and i think people recognize that adversity is is beneficial but we're still having our parents and our parents parents um, afraid of therapy, afraid of, um, you know, of not afraid, but forcing these protection, you know, metrics onto their kids because they want to protect them from the real world. And reality, all they're doing is depriving them of experiences that could make them better. And mm. I think it'd be really cool to just be a part of a network of people that think that way that I can lean on if I needed to. And mm -hmm. maybe, maybe I don't have uh, an immediate support system of people that 
are the average that I want to be like. And maybe this is an opportunity for me to get connected with people that can be that for me, even if they're not in my you know neighborhood or in my state or anywhere. It could be, you know, it's an entirely remote program. So mm. um, having that like-mindedness was really important too. Man, it's really good. I tell you, you know, these uh, after action reports that we did with everybody, that was the number one piece of feedback is I think everyone felt like they were this isolated weird kid that thought exactly what you just said and then to to find other people across you know because we did it on zoom and it wasn't um in person so that we could you know find these misfits and you know outcast across the nation and you know a couple outside the states and everybody's feedback was man it was so cool and encouraging to be with a group of people that all not identical. I mean, different ages, different jobs, but that they had that one thing in common. Like, hey, I, I think, I think this all goes together. I don't think it's separate. And uh, that's an interesting thing too. You know, this is a very antiquated philosophy of dualism, right? Rene Descartes said, "I think, therefore I am," which is basically insinuating that, hey, if I got this thing working well, that's all I am. And if you ever seen pictures of Rene Descartes, he's a huge, like obese guy, right? But I, I think uh, one of the issues I have with like the traditional gym, and and you mentioned this, and is why I'm saying it. It was like, hey, if you can achieve elite performance, then you're basically beyond reproach, right? The typical CrossFitter that's in really great shape. Someone in our position, they would say, like, well. I don't know what I can do for them because they're already in good shape. But when you change this paradigm and you say, well, you're not just this one thing. In in dualism, you know, in the um in a religious set of optics, you would say, well, if if my spiritual disciplines are good, then I am good. Which is to reduce it down to this one thing. And then the athlete would say, well, if I'm physically very impressive, it means I am impressive. And what we're saying is, hey, both of those are good, but there's more. It, it can't be isolated like that. For you to express yourself as well spiritually as you would like, you, you have this physical body that you have to do something with. For you to have this physical body that is going to go do good in the world, like the other things have to be in check as well. And so I get that ever so often from other coaches. It's like, well, what do I do if somebody's in great shape? And with this perspective of six territories that you explore to see how well-rounded someone's life is, everybody gets the smoke. Nobody gets out alive. And I say that jokingly, but it's like if we investigate enough things, I will find the thing that's in limited supply for you. It is the definition of a system that something must be in limited supply. There is always a constraint. And so I think for the coach, it's a much more it's it's a much more robust model. There's no doubt about it. It's and I think the reason that it's not mainstream popular is because it's harder. It's harder. To to reconcile these things as not mutually exclusive but but inclusive, that's harder. It takes a greater skill set, but it's also how life works. Sorry, you know, it's it's complex, but so is life. You know, this is hard to do, but 
so is life. And so I wish that there was an easier answer that, that actually mimicked reality, but this is reality. And so you have to, you have to be able to talk about these things. And it doesn't mean that you're a therapist or you take the place of a rabbi or a pastor, but it does mean that from a self-actualization standpoint, in trying to be the best that you can across all of these domains, there is someone, i.e. you and I, that can be in that position boldly and confidently and say, I'm here for all of these things. Now, ultimately, it's you that has to do it, but I'm here for it. And that, to me, we talked about how, you know, like fitness was a mistress when I was 20 years old. That's gone from like this short-term affair to like this long, monogamous, like loving, uh, to the day I die, it's what I'll be doing. And that gets me fired up to hear you say, and, and yeah, thanks for letting me riff on, on some of those things that you had to say as well. Yeah, it's cool. It's it's cool that, you know, I think anyone who's been a trainer for a period of time, a, a, a longer period of time, has been in that position where you feel like you're baby, babysitting someone, mm-hmm. you're babysitting, you know, a high school athlete or, or, you know, most of us end up babysitting 65-year-old women who just have money and want that relationship of being around people and being pushed and challenged. And maybe you make them warm up for an hour and you're happy about it because they pay you a little bit more. And that's great and all, but I think it's it takes a, a certain type of person to look at that as an opportunity and let a, instead of a um, and constraint, right? It's, yeah, this person may not want to get bigger, faster, and stronger, but maybe they need me in different aspects. And mm-hmm. if you look at that from a different perspective and you see it as an opportunity to, you know, how can I invest in this person? It's, it's going to be obvious that more often than not, it's not the physical. And like you said, it's the physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, you know, there's all these layers that, you know, if you, I think about it as if you plot them out on a chart, you want them all to rise at the same time. You mm-hmm. don't want one to go up and one to go down. That's mm-hmm. a, a net neutral change. And that's not bettering you. You know, you can be the most physical person in the world, but if you can't control your finances. You can't control your emotions. You're, you know, quick to rage. Like maybe you got other things you got to focus on mm-hmm. than that PR. And so it's like um, in my last role, we, we had a lot of people who would try to game the system and basically almost lie their way into a disability. And it was unique because you have things like Guillain-Barre and things like um, reflex sympathetic dystrophy that's now called uh, complex regional pain syndrome. And it's subjective. It's like the pain scale. You can't measure. We have to take your word for it. Yeah, it's Mm -hmm. zero to 10. Hey, on this chart, where are you at, buddy? oh, you say this, okay, I have to take it for your word. Mm -hmm. And um, with some of these conditions, uh, you know, your brain is such a powerful thing that these people have convinced themselves that they're in pain. And it's not to say that they're not just because an image or a test shows that your, you know, your structures and your ligaments and tendons and bones are all perfectly normal and you shouldn't be in pain. doesn't mean that they're actually not in pain. Like they're probably still in pain. They've just convinced themselves of that. And so it's like we could we had the opportunity at that point to say, this is an inappropriate person. They're not really disabled. They're not missing an arm and leg. They're not in a wheelchair. Um, we can't help them. But the reality is if we take that as an opportunity and say, you know what, what if, what if, what if this helps them? What if this gets them out of this, this system that they're stuck in? What if this illuminates uh, something in their life that they've, that they've been numb or purposefully ignoring? And what if they get better because of it? Just because, 
they're, you know, just because there's a subjective illness doesn't mean that we have to discredit them. Mm -hmm. And that's the same thing with anyone. Just because you're overweight doesn't mean you need to be discredited. Just because you lie and you don't really track your calories exactly as you should and you don't measure your condiments and you don't, you know, measure your water and you're like, oh, yeah, I totally did everything you asked me to do. doesn't mean that they're not worthy of the opportunity. And so Mm. I think you kind of have to purposefully and intentionally put yourself into this position of how do I find the opportunity with these people because it does take a specific person to be able to control their emotions and do all these things that you you talk about with sharing and being vulnerable and doing all these things, but it takes practice. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I years ago focused on a lot was in the realm of controlling your emotions is, yeah, if it takes me, let's say, six hours to realize, you know what? I definitely overreacted to that. I probably didn't need to go that hard. And okay, what if six hours turned into three hours? That's awesome. That's mm. that's progress. What if three hours turned into one? What if what if within one minute I can realize that I'm overreacting? Mm-hmm. I still didn't ignore it, and I'm still acknowledging it. But maybe that's the best it's ever going to get. But that's pretty good if I can recognize my mistake within a minute of it happening, or within hell thirty seconds. And so it's like you're not trying to eliminate these issues just because somebody is being disingenuous doesn't mean that there's not an opportunity for them to to start to recognize their own faults and see their own blind spots mm-hmm. and be exposed to them. And if you can do that in a healthy, unique way, that's how you change people's lives. And that's how you make a connection with people. That's how you invest in them and see them for the long term. And it might not happen overnight and it might not be perfectly visible. You're not going to see a change in the mirror because you've lost weight or put more weight on the bar. But at the end of the day, like, those are the things that you're going to remember a decade from now and be proud of and, mm-hmm. and realize, hey, I, I made an actual change in somebody's life that is going to help them and the people around them. And like that feels a lot better than, man, this guy put a 10 on the end of the bar and a 10 on the other side of the bar and they lifted it like that was cool. Like whenever you're 40, 50, 60 and, you know, 30 years from now when people start to understand the things that are purpose-driven and passionate about our lives, like that's what's going to matter. So I think that's what's exciting to me is you've kind of cornered the market of these interesting people doing interesting things that have interesting ways of thinking about things and putting them all in the same room together. And that's really cool. Man, feel pretty lucky for that. And I think it's all cool. You know, it's like the pendulum can swing so far that we start to, you know, throw rocks at, uh, you know, linear progression for strength training and, you know, PRs and, and benchmark improvements like that stuff's great. I just wanted to go somewhere beyond the gym. Sure. You talk about emotional regulation. I think physical fitness is a therapist wet dream for distress tolerance. Right. Absolutely. Those guys are just sitting in an office talking about things that we should do. And so I think that, you know, when you put 10 pounds on a barbell, there's some there's some latent symbolism that you say, well, if I get stronger, it means, you know, Mark Ripto's famous quote is like, hey, stronger people are harder to kill or, you know, whatever. And it's like, hey, never a weakness. Yeah. Yeah. You've connected the dots between, hey, this thing should mean something really valuable outside of the gym. And I think training and this is probably, you know, years from now, but I think there's ways I'm, I'm about to meet with a guy right now and we're going to give some workouts 
that have nothing to do with his physical performance. And they are workouts that we will administer because he has told me his constraint and limiting factor is the inability to handle stress. Now, it's not physical stress that he can't handle. He's a really fit guy. But he falls apart when something doesn't go his way. It takes him, as you said, a long time to go from, oh, shit, to okay. And we're going to give him workouts that intentionally put him in that place so that when things happen to him outside of the gym that he can't control, he says, okay, instead of, oh, shit. I think that's where the gym can be reappropriated. Sure, let's be, let's be healthy. Sure, let's have appropriate body composition. Sure, let's have you know a healthy VO2 max for our age. But I think the potential when we cross this chasm and we say, hey, it's okay to talk about this stuff, then the gym and workouts can actually be a training center for life like I think it was originally designed to be. And ultimately, I think that's what we can do at the Institute. And it's pretty freaking cool to think of stuff like that, right? I don't exactly, like, I don't exactly know how it's going to go, but I have some ideas, right? Same as the Institute. Yeah, well, that's what's exciting about mm-hmm. it. What if, how boring would it be if everything that you planned went exactly as planned? Mm-hmm. And that was one thing that I had to learn with adaptive athletes is you have this 10-week training program of on this day you do legs and this day you do arms and whatever the breakdown was, but you show up without a leg and it's like, how do you do squats? And it's like, well, we plan squats, so we have to do squats. And it's like, okay, great, who cares? Let's do something else. And you kind of have to throw the book away a little bit to be excited about it, but I don't want to harp too much on the on the lack of importance for the physicality. The physicality is arguably one of the more important ones. It's just a lot more, it's a lot easier to, for people to connect with right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And hopefully that changes, but the physical is kind of the lowest rung of the ladder because it's the most accessible, it's the most vision visual, you know, element that we have to offer. And so it's never something that you should remove, but for the most part, in my experience, people that take this decade long trajectory in fitness is they see the benefits, is they make progress, they start to have some setbacks, mm-hmm. they start to figure out what supercompensation is, they start to realize that there needs to be maintenance and rest and mm-hmm. progression. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, wow, this is amazing. And then they're like, okay, what's next? Because once you once you start to figure it out and realize it and you get that bar chart to a sufficient threshold for your lifestyle, then you start to look at, okay, what's next? And it's, and it's oftentimes not the physical, but that doesn't mean that you ever let that rung go down. Mm-hmm. And so it's how do I take that time again to, to create the biggest area of room for improvement in my life and focus on one of the other bars and focus on something else to... To figure out how do I manage my stress? You know, what do I need to do with my finances? What do I need to do with my relationships? And how do I invest into that mm-hmm. while still keeping my physical health a priority? And so the physical is always there. It's exciting. It's fun. Like once you get to a point where you can throw some weight around or go run a significant amount of miles or distance or do something that makes you feel good, like why would you stop doing that? Mm-hmm. Keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Just realize that there may be an opportunity to invest in other areas of your life that would give you more benefit than continuing to pound pavement and invest six hours on an Ironman training instead of four. You know, what if that two hours was better used somewhere else? And I Mm -hmm. think we just have to constantly ask ourselves those questions and recognize what if there was a better way. Yeah. It's, it's, it's unfortunately constantly paying attention. Yeah. Yeah. And just like you said, it's, it might not work. 
And is that a bad thing or is that a good thing? And if you make it a bad thing, then you can sit here and wallow in self-pity about what didn't work all the time or you, again, can make a choice and create an opportunity to figure out, okay, that didn't work. Now we know. That's awesome. Let's move on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. And just like the iteration that you talked about. Yeah. Well, and in, in there's a difference between our self-worth as individuals and then the roles that we're trying to play. And and then maybe to triangulate those two things, roles, identity, and then there's the intent behind it. My intentions are good. My identity is secure. My role demands that I'm going to mess up and I'm going to make mistakes. And what's cool is like that dude I'm about to work with, he gets that too. Like he's accepted that this is not going to be a flawless process. And I think that if you have all those things, you're fine. <laughs> We're some reason like really afraid to make mistakes because we think it implies that we're a piece of shit. And it's like, man, if we could just separate those two, it's hard because what is identity? Well, it's probably just a bunch of roles that we assume and that conglomeration is who I am. But I think if you can come up with a different definition of that, then those that, those that say, hey, this is what I want to be, you know, the health coach, this is the journey that I want to go on, you can boldly go in that direction not knowing everything if your intentions are pure and your identity is secured. Before I get you out of here, for someone that, that you think could benefit from participating in this next cohort for the Institute, what would you say that, that you think would be helpful for them to hear? Um, I think if anyone's even remotely questioning if this is for them, um, you probably already know that it's for you. Mm. And I think the reality is those people that understand that there is an opportunity and that there could be more um, probably know that they there's a lot of opportunity there that could be invested into. And it's a small monetary investment, but we all know how well that – the more you spend money on something, the more you actually get out of it. Mm. And so you commit to it. There's a transaction there that holds you accountable. And so there has to be some sort of monetary or time investment in, involved in it. And so, yeah, you're paying for this value. But at the end of the day, like <clears throat> some of the best questions were asked just amongst the, the weeks. And mm -hmm. part of what you're talking about is, is how you communicate with people. And I think a lot of people in this space understand the value of of behavior and, and research and all of these things that come into the mental health game and how you can add to your clients' lives outside of the physical, but they don't know how to communicate it. And so some of the most valuable parts for me was hearing, here's the structured way to do it, and here's the science behind it, here's the proof as to why this works and how this works, but more so the dialogue between each other and hearing how other people answer questions, hearing how they ask questions mm. to you and Marcella and how you guys respond it's so much different than anything I've ever seen mm. and so much more um, rewarding in a way that it's like, wow, that makes sense. Okay, I understand. Like, I can see a path where I can utilize this. I can put this into action tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I was putting things that we were doing in the Institute into my clients' programs within weeks of doing it. Oh, we were still cool. doing the program. And it's awesome to see them now progress from that. And I have an opportunity to make it my own and figure out, okay, if this is what they've given me, how do I make it? better for this person or how do I change it for this person? And it's all a starting point that you can, you know, connect the dots in your own unique way. And that's mm -hmm. really cool. Mm -hmm. So I think it's something that 
if you take the opportunity and you understand, you already know that it's for you. You already know that it's going to be worth it. It's just about taking the time to invest in how you communicate it to the people around you and taking the time to invest in the future of what lifestyle and health coaching has to offer if you want to get out of the physical game and still keep it a priority, if that makes sense. That's awesome, man. Thank you so much for being here. For those that are watching this, the next cohort that we'll have is March 4th. Um, we'll open up registration probably within like a couple of weeks of when this is released. We'll take 20 people, no more. It'll be even better than, uh, sorry, it'll be even better than the it one that you, that you It has went to be. Through. It better be better than the first one, and the second, third one should be better than the yeah. second one. And and everyone has an opportunity to add their own elements to mm -hmm. it. If you take that as an opportunity and recognize, hey, if I ask good questions, if I communicate well with Marcella and Spencer and the people that they also are going to ask you to communicate with, then I can add my own little piece of the puzzle to this, and I can be the person that can help the next cohort become better. And that's something that I think anyone can resonate with and anyone can understand that that's beneficial to the people around them. And mm -hmm. if you're making that network better, you're going to get better too. And yeah. so, you know, take advantage of it and recognize the opportunity. Thanks for being here, man. Thanks for having me.